like to invite you all at this point to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 31 as we continue in our trek through the book of Genesis. We will be in verses 17 through 42. This is the word that the Lord has prepared for us today. It's a real joy and privilege to be with you all here today. I'm thankful to be in this pulpit, and I'm thankful that the words of our God will comfort us each. If you would please, we will now read the authoritative, inspired, and errant word of God, starting in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, their man, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued them for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song, with tambourines and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now... You have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force, and anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and went into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all of your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it for myself. 
From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is authoritative, and it's spoken for all time for your people. We ask today for us here at Christ the Redeemer that your spirit would work the truths of this passage into our heart in deep and abiding ways, that we'd be transformed more into the likeness of your Son by the reading and hearing of your word. We pray and ask for the teaching that we are about to hear this morning that would be in accordance with what you have set. We love you, Father. We thank you for Christ and his work upon the cross on our behalf. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now as we come to this passage, I want to argue that we've all had moments like this one. When a relationship changes over time, and it ends in a place that we never expected that it would. Now it certainly might not look exactly like this one, with a father-in-law feud, as I've titled today's sermon. But clearly we can find ourselves in different places within this passage Now, it has been a bit since we've been in this book in Genesis, and by way of reminder, where we were last was a few weeks ago when when our brother Andon brought the word to us on the first scene that we had in this chapter right here. I'm thankful, though, that as we walked through that sermon about stock options, for you to remember, and thinking about the cattle that Laban was trying to maneuver and, and, and trick and have a deal, the Lord's hand of provision was upon Jacob. God's hand has been on His children for all time. He is a covenant-keeping God. We find that here in our passage today, as we continue, we we see the deception of a father-in-law who is on display, who is trying to pursue Jacob. As I prepared for this sermon today, I, I thought actually at one point about a song by Johnny Cash. Now many of you maybe don't like Johnny Cash, that's too bad. I find him to be the greatest country music prophet of all time. But he has a song called No Earthly Good. And if you don't know the song, basically the song has a refrain that goes throughout the song multiple times where it says, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I actually believe as we think about this song, there's something within that that our culture says, and I am aware that Johnny Cash likely became a brother in in, in later years in his life. There's something within this passage that I believe is exactly the opposite of that. And the human experience for most of us, even those within the church, is exactly the opposite. That we are so earthly-minded that we're actually no heavenly good. Now I think as we look at this passage, we're going to see an unfolding chaotic scene of, of people who are working in such a way that it's often by their own hands that they're pursuing things of this world. As we look at this, we can think about Laban's daughter. We can think about Rachel. 
We can think about Laban himself. We can think about Jacob. All three of these people that we see here in this scene for us this morning, they know who the true God is. They know the one living God. Yet we're going to see actually physical idols on display. We're going to see two of the three people who have idols of their heart that I believe there is much for us to garner and to gain from this. Now hopefully you're not here this morning and worshiping physical idols, that you maybe don't have shrines set up in your house or household idols like Laban did. But if you did, I would encourage you as well that there is one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of you and me. As we look at this and we consider what our passage has for us, I believe that there's something that we really should consider. There's this difficult journey that we have in front of us And I want you to consider, just like Jacob's family, our rescue is from the only true God. Just like them, we are in need of a Redeemer this morning. Just like them, our Redeemer is found in Christ. Now we see this here, this very picture of a Messiah in types and shadows of what is being talked about. This is far before Christ actually came onto the scene physically in human flesh. But they're trusting and needing that same Messiah. However, in the midst of this, we're going to see family dysfunction. We're going to see chaos, as I mentioned. We're going to see worries and anxieties and fears and a family feud that might be reflective of things going on in your own personal world. There might be difficulties this morning going on. And actually, I believe all of us have difficulties There are things that as I say that right now, you are thinking about in your heart and saying, God, how on earth did this happen? God, why on earth did you let this happen to me, to us? I invite you to hold those tensions this morning, for our passage really deals with those tensions well. And I believe and I'm convinced that His Word breathes life into these places. Now if you would, would you please turn with me, and we're going to look at these first five verses before we get much further into this passage. We're going to see three truths from our passage. Now these are three truths for each and every one of you here in this room, and there are three truths that I believe are reflective and show the picture of what is going on with Jacob and Laban and Rachel. But our first truth is this, that the Lord is with us in difficult journeys. We see that in these first five verses. Second, we're going to see a second truth that human wisdom and idols cannot deliver us. As we get to it a little bit later, there are going to be three subpoints related to this. And three, we are called to speak truth when it is difficult. Each of these come to us from this word this morning. Each of us are things that all of us are needing to hear. We're needing to hear from the living God today. So if you would, as we now get to this point, we're going to talk about this difficult journey. And a reminder that the Lord is with us in difficult journeys, we are going to see that the Lord is actually with Jacob on a difficult journey. Now by way of reminder, as we look at this passage, and as you're seeing this journey unfold, he's fleeing. You might remember back, I hope that you do, to just a few chapters earlier. Now it was in June that we walked through this passage in chapter 28, where Jacob was sent out from his father where he was sent out by his mother, that he had stolen his brother's birthright, and he was going out to Laban with nothing. 
And the Lord met him at Bethel and met him in this place where the Lord came and established an altar and told him, I am your God. At the start of his journey to Laban, we now find ourselves 20 years later where he's having another difficult journey. He's walking out something that actually might look like an impossible situation. As we look at this text, we don't see a lot of details, but it says he takes his cattle, he takes his family, he takes things with him, but we don't see that he's taking an army. He takes what is his, what he is worth 20 years for, his two wives, his livestock, and he sets out. What a vulnerable place to be, and by way of reminder, he's probably in the neighborhood of about 500 miles from his homeland. There's a lot that can happen there. There's robbers, there's people in the deserts that we know about from that world that would likely look at him and say, man, this is an incredibly vulnerable man. There's much that I could gain by taking it from him. Jacob knows these things as he is going and setting out on this journey. Yet God has revealed to him here in these passages that he is with him in this difficult journey. That this inheritance is his, that he is a child of the covenant, that he is who God will work through. And that there are difficult emotions and things that he himself, I'm sure, has to deal with. I want to think about each of these people as we walk through this. Now, the story of all of Scripture is the God of the universe. But I am convinced that much of Scripture is actually there because we find ourselves in these passages and places that are challenging. We might look at this and we might see Jacob, or we might see Rachel, or we might see Laban, and find ourselves resonating with their hearts, find ourselves resonating in such a way that the Lord of the universe, the triune God, is coming and showing much to you this morning. But there's a picture actually in these passages, and I, I think it's really important that we look at this. It's actually incredibly beautiful. When we get into the Hebrew, this language that comes throughout all of this passage is very militaristic. There's actually language within this passage where it talks about the nature of what is going on of Laban, that he is going out for war. Now that gets missed when it comes into English. And what I love about the Hebrew language is there's this beautiful poetry, this picture that helps us to understand what's going on. Now is that explicitly stated in English? No, but it's very explicitly shown in the metaphors and types and what is going on from the Hebrew language for us here actually in this passage. So if you were reading it in Hebrew, you'd get this picture that once Laban finds out about this journey, this escape of what is going on here in this passage, that he is set out to murder, to kill, to take what he believes is rightly his. But there's a lot in that that I think is incredibly an incredible picture. Because what happens in this picture, what happens in these verses that we see or that we read... If you would, please look with me at verse 24. As Laban has set out on this journey, he's taken the opportunity to go and seize upon Jacob. Verse 24 says this, But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So what stays the hand of Laban? What stays this man from doing what it is that he desires to do? God. God is interceding and working in this difficult journey on behalf of Jacob, on behalf of his family. Now we're going to see, as we see in these coming verses right after this, that what actually happens and unfolds is a picture that he does not do anything good or bad, but he does plead his case. He does unfold things in such a way 
that we see Laban's heart on display in these coming verses. I think it's incredibly important for us to think about this. Now, he has pursued him seven days with kinsmen, and a lot of commentators talk about what kinsmen are. So I want to speak to that briefly, because I think that there's many different ways you can interpret what a kinsman is. Luckily, it is a small band. Some would say it's his immediate family, and they're going out, and this is Laban's family and Jacob's family, and it's more cordial. I don't believe that to be the case, again, because of the militaristic language that we see. This could be indentured servants. This could be people who uh, have an opportunity or right that if they serve under him for long enough, that these are his kinsmen that would be working alongside. But what we know are these are people that are a part of his household that are obligated, that feel a debt, that feel that they should act on Laban's behalf. Now Laban is going out with them, likely armed to these people. And he, though, is encountering the living God here in the desert. And the living God says, do not harm my servant Jacob. Don't do anything good or bad. It's the beautiful thing of our first point that we see in this journey, this, this, this picture that the Lord is protecting and providing for Jacob despite a father-in-law who he worked with for 20 years. Now the relationship has changed dramatically. God of heaven is protecting him. He's protecting his journey. Now I want you all to consider and look with me at our second point. Because if we look at our second point, which is going to come right after this in verse 25 to 35, we're going to see that human wisdom and idols cannot deliver us. I'm going to say that again. Human idols and wisdom cannot deliver us. They will not deliver us. They are not able to deliver us. And we see this here with actually three subsections, as I mentioned previously. The first, I want to put it out this way. First is Laban's plea, which we see here in verses... <clears throat> Uh, we, we, we see here in the first part of the, this section here in 25 to 30. Next, we're going to see second, Jacob's response. Jacob's response is in verses 31 and 32. And our third sub-point is Laban's actions. And we see that Laban searches for gods in verses 33 and 35. And I'm going to unpack these sub-points just a little bit more. I want you to look at the first one and see the fullness of the family feud that we talked about. Laban's plea. He's overtaken Jacob and functionally is ready to have it out with him. But what does he do? He asks questions. Lots of questions, I might ask. And I would argue that there's probably questions that aren't even captured here, but certainly there are many questions. So he does not say something good or bad. He does not full out accuse him, but he does offer things like, what have you done that you have tricked me? And he makes accusations and stating that he might have sent them off with a party and singing. He does not say that he would. He says he might have. That he could have kissed his daughters and grandsons. But he does say, I could harm you. I have it within my right to harm you. Again, this, this group, this band that has come with him, they're likely standing at odds with Jacob, likely actually have, have come and cut off his path. And they're standing there with, with potential weaponry and saying, I could do these things to you, but God has told me not to. He parrots back exactly what God told him to say. God told me to say, do not inflict good or bad upon you. He leaves it there. He sets it there. But I actually think that there's something really important that moves from here. We see into the second thing is this second section that Jacob says, hey, I've done nothing wrong. Jacob's response to this is that I have not done anything wrong. 
I have worked hard for these things. I've worked for both of your daughters. I have worked for your livestock. You tried to change the contract on me. He's saying all these things to Laban, and he says, I've done nothing wrong. Look anywhere, and if you find something that is yours, rightly so, that person will be killed. Now, what's crazy is the very one that Jacob loves, the very prized possession, the very prized wife of his life, that of Rachel, has actually, through Jacob, should be receiving judgment. She should be receiving the weight of this sin, the the, the weight of these consequences that is here for these people this morning. He says, no, I've not done anything wrong. If I have, kill me. If somebody else has, kill them too. That's what he's saying right here. Now imagine if you were Rachel in this position. As as Jacob is making this statement in this plea, she's thinking there might be protection. And instead she's getting the opposite. That she is now exposed. That she now has fear. She now has anxiety. She now has worries. Why? Because she stole the household gods of her father. And we're going to see, though, an incredible response, though. We're going to see Laban's actions. This third movement or section shows how God is even going to protect over and above earthly idols in these verses. I find it incredible. It's almost humorous in a way as we look at this and we see this passage, what happens here with Laban's actions. Laban looks everywhere. As it says, he feels around. So, I mean, I imagine it's probably dark. He is looking in every nook, every cranny. He wants judgment. He wants to bring something upon Jacob. He's wanting to probably reclaim the possessions and things that he believes are his. The cattle, his daughters, he wants to take them back with him to his land. Now I think what's incredible as we see this picture, as I've already talked about Rachel, what what does she do? She takes those idols, she places them in the saddlebag of the camel and sits on them and then says, it's, it's the time of the month. The way of women is upon me, is what it says. It, it, it's meaning it's that time of the month for me, which if we consider a little bit further on in Scriptures, if we look at the Levitical law, what actually happens here is she's saying, I am unclean and that no man should touch me. So we do not have that written for us yet, but the, 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 the law that is going to come here shortly after this uh, for the Israelite people that will be written down is that of saying that I am unclean. And in the process, if you were to touch me, you would become defiled. Anything that touches me in this moment is going to be defiled, as worthless, as unclean. But where are the gods? Where are these idols? They're under her. They're unclean. These idols have become unclean in the process that she's functionally saying about these idols, that functionally what every idol says for us, they're worthless. They are unclean. They do not have the power to save. They will not set things right. Now we look at this and say, what is it that she's done? She's actually violating the second commandment, which again, we will get in Exodus here later. But we see that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, but what's actually going on is a violation that we see that there is sin that is occurring, as our confession would remind us, sin is any want or lack of conformity to God's standards. She's not conforming to the standards of God. She is not upholding what it is that is to be done. She's violating the second commandment and hiding an idol. What should she deserve? Death. What does she get? She gets life. 
she does not experience death. Although she is sitting on this idol, and I would argue actually from this passage what we see later, that because of this passage, the journey into Israel, the journey that we see now for the Israelite people, there's an intermixing and intermingling of gods. And so when we see elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, Israel continues this habit loop and this pattern of worshiping other gods and not the one true God. They worship the one true God, but they bring in other things. They place other things into their life. She is sitting here at this moment and saying, functionally by her actions, I know these gods are worthless. I know these idols can hold no candle to the living God, the God of Jacob, my God, and the one true and living God. I'm going to hide them out of sight. They're not going to deliver me if I showed them to my father-in-law right now. They would not save me. She knows her dad's not going to touch her because they're hiding, but really more so the provision of the living God is upon her, is upon them right now. But what do we see about idols that are kept, that are held on to? There are repercussions. As I already mentioned, for Israel, there's going to be an intermixing of religions and things that come that it's going to confuse and bring chaos. It is not going to be just a clean ride from here on out for Jacob's family and his line. That it's only going to be worship of the living God until he comes as the Messiah of this world and reveals himself in flesh. The beautiful thing is, as she's sitting here with doubts and anxieties and fears, God does provide. In an unusual way, but God does provide and speaks into this moment. Now, I think there's an important thing, because as we look at this and we consider these three things, as we look at, at Laban and Jacob and Laban again, as we look at their responses here in regard to the reality that idols cannot save, and I would argue as well, Rachel has seen this too, idols will not save. There's something for them. That what happens in the coming verses? We actually see that truth is spoken. We actually see that life is received because the true Word of God is proclaimed. God delivers His people, and we're going to actually see that here in verses 36 to 42, that Jacob does something incredibly difficult in these passages, and actually our third truth for us here is this, that we are called to speak truth even when it is difficult. God calls us to speak into the lives of this world, into the lives of this lost and hurting place, even when it is hard. Now, Jacob does exactly this here in these passages. Does he do so from a place, though, of righteousness in response to his God? No, he actually does so from a place of anger. But he still speaks truth. What does it say in verse 36? Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? You have felt through all my goods. <clears throat> what have you found of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between the two of us. I'll stop right there. We look at this and see, what is it that he's doing? He's calling for a judge. He's asking for a council of people to come and to speak and to provide life and to speak to the reality of truth. Jacob has taken nothing. Has his wife? Yes. 
But Jacob has done nothing wrong. And Jacob knows that the living God, he stands right before him, but he also knows that if Jacob's kinsmen, as well as Laban's kinsmen, look at this, they're going to see you've changed the terms many, many times. Here he is on the desert that we all know that he worked six years for your cattle. We all know that he worked 14 years for his two wives. What has he done wrong? He doesn't have your idols. He doesn't have your gods. The one thing that he could be held accountable for were not found. And Jacob at this moment believes that he's right and that he does not have these household idols and gods with him at this point and in this moment. But we see in this passage something that he actually says, I want the people to speak and to show that I am true, that I am right, that I have not done something to offend you. Jacob's own daughters, actually, if we go right before this passage where we're at today, say, our God, our, our father, I'm sorry, our father has defrauded us and defrocked us of all that we should have of our inheritance. We know our rights. We see what it is that we should have. And look at this. And actually in verse 14 it says, Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, that is to Jacob, is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him, that is their father, as foreigners? He has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. So even his own daughters see the deception, the crookedness of Laban. As they were saying to Jacob right before this passage, hey, we will go on this journey with you. We have nothing left here. Our hope is with you. Our hope is in God. The provider and provision for each of them is the living God. He is the one who meets them here. Now, as we look at this, actually, I think it's really powerful that it's important for us to see that as we are called to speak this truth, there's a lot that we're going to see in it as well. In coming weeks, we're actually going to see how it is and in what ways that Laban understands or sees. We don't get into that much in this passage, but we're going to get into this right after this. Laban is going to understand a little bit of where he stands in the coming verses. And there's actually going to be a covenant, which we'll talk about again in two weeks, but we see here in this that Jacob is invoking God to listen, God to hear. He sees and knows what is actually going on in this passage as he is speaking firmly and fervently in verses 36 through 41 about what happened. He talks about the deception, the hurt. I bore the loss for myself. I treated you fairly. If we actually even think about this too, the relationship has likely changed dramatically for Jacob as well. He spent 20 years, and this is his father-in-law, working in his house, becoming a part of his family. He's married his daughters. They've probably shared many meals together. That We're just seeing a microcosm of a few chapters that bring 20 years of life into just a small area. But the relationship has changed for Jacob as well. He's looking at this and seeing to his father-in-law. He knows that his father-in-law is a shrewd businessman. His father-in-law is not thinking about the prosperity and what will flow forth into what is coming. And even the promise that when Jacob came 20 years before and said that God has blessed me and that I should marry one of your daughters, he's not remembering or thinking those things. He's looking out for himself. The relationship has changed here in this place. Yet Jacob does not appease or speak to his father-in-law. He speaks to the living God and asks for him to intercede on his behalf. He asks for him to speak life and truth and asks for God again to deliver him in the midst of this second difficult journey right here in the midst of the desert, right here in front of his father-in-law. He's looking back in really a beautiful way 
and saying, okay, if I'm guilty of any deception, if I have done anything wrong, have it out on me. But let others decide. Let it be known that in the courts of heaven I am seen favorably before God. And he even goes so far into verse 42. What does he say there? If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Speaking there to his father-in-law. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And again, what stayed? Laban's hand. God. Who is Jacob's provision in protecting him here in the desert and will get him and his lineage to go on and to fulfill the covenant? God. Who is protecting him in the midst of this difficult journey and ensuring that everything will work out as God in eternity past had planned? God. He's working in his life. He's working in our lives. I think it's important for us to land here in this spot because as we look to what is going on in this passage, there's a hardship. We left it a little bit of a cliffhanger. As, as If you read just a verse or two further on, you can go, okay, I understand what's going to happen. We'll, as I said, we'll get to that in two weeks. But I think that we need to sit here in this tension. We need to rest in this place and see these three things. That God is with you in your difficult journey. Because to be here on this earth is a difficult journey for anyone who knows and loves the living God. We are called His children. We are called His people. Our Messiah and Redeemer has come and protects us on the, the, the things of our day. We might have difficult days in front of us. We might have easy days in front of us. Wherever we find ourselves, God is with us here in this journey. Again, I don't know where you are at. I know my own heart and where it is that I am at today. And I know the journey that the Lord is protecting and providing and sustaining me through and will sustain and protect each and every one of you through as well. It's my privilege to pray to that end for each of you every single day that He would protect and sustain you and shepherd your souls to your eternal home. It's this reality of that already but not yet that I frequently talk about that we are already redeemed. But we don't see it, not yet, in its full reality. That we have these broken bodies. That we know that we're redeemed. That we are set free by the living God. But we do feel as sojourners and exiles here in this land. I want to encourage you a second point. The second thing to remember is that of our three points. Two, human idols, human wisdom cannot and will not deliver you. I think about this frequently, and I think about the things that will creep up today in each and every one of your hearts. It might be bills that are pressing. It might be businesses that are struggling. It might be relationships or family dynamics just like this one. So you go, how on earth did we get here? This is not what I expected. It's not what I thought. Maybe I can make this right if I just bend on the truth a little bit and we set the relationship right. If I compromise the standards of what I know God's Word says, to make this relationship here, this side of eternity, better. I'd encourage you, don't, for His Word actually shows us this morning that that actually does not provide any hope, does not provide any help. He knows the corners of your heart that are dark. 
He has seen the places of your life that you're afraid of this morning that you said, God could not speak to this place as we started our time together. How could God allow for this? He's working in those places. How do I know that He's working in those places? It's because God of heaven sent His Son to die for you. That Jesus lived that perfect life that we could never live. He died on the cross for the sins of this world and those who would by faith trust and believe in Him. And then He did what was impossible for you and me to do. He overcame the grave and He resurrected. He was resurrected from the dead showing that He has power over sin and He has power over death. As a God who has power over sin and death, we need to look to Him. We must look to His hope that He has given to us. The promise that we see actually here in Genesis 31 was that of Genesis 3, that the serpent would be crushed. Now Jacob would remember these things and know these things. He spent 20 years growing with God that when God revealed and showed Himself to, uh, as we saw in Genesis 28, that He is remembering back and remembering the promises and remembering the covenant that He has kept that He will crush the serpent. But He is coming. He is coming very soon for Jacob. He is the reigning king. Jacob is not the king. He is pleading his case and saying, God, you are all truth. You are all right. You are the reason that I live. I need a Messiah. I need you to step in that even right now, Laban could take my life from me, but I know your promises. I know that you've spoken truth. I know that you've said that you would build my family and that you would fulfill the covenant through them. It mirrors and shadows back the different types that we've seen as well, that everything could be taken right here, but God would still provide. God would still provide resurrection power. God is at work, and as we see in Christ alone, that that resurrection power comes in and through Jesus. He's waiting for that Messiah. We have that Messiah, this side that we have seen. He has come in human flesh. That 2,000 years ago, He showed us what it is that He has done. He has crushed those places, those dark corners of our lives that feel irredeemable and very soon will be fully redeemed. Very soon will be fully made right because of His righteousness given to us. Nothing of our own hands do we bring. It is to His cross that we must cling. So look though in verse 42. For you might seriously still be feeling the affliction of what this day holds. But what does verse 42 say for us? I encourage you to see what Jacob saw. That we have a God who has seen our affliction and the labor of our hands. That He has seen that and knows your soul. He is comforting this loss and hurting world, and He is comforting your soul and my soul as well. Would you please pray with me? Our Lord and our God, I ask for comfort for Your people this morning. For though we look at chaotic stories like this and we wonder what it is that You might be at work and what it is You might be doing, and we look at our own stories, there might be chaos and busyness and confusion, or there might be joy 
For there was joy mixed in this too. Jacob has a family. But we ask that you would comfort us. Whether we've been alive for 20 years, just like Jacob sojourned for 20 years, or whether we've been alive and walking with you as covenant children for 80 plus years of our life, we know the journey that we are on is set by your hand. Comfort our souls. Remind us of our eternal home and the truth that you have written and confirmed in your word. This is found in the word made flesh. You alone, Christ, can be trusted. We look to that day when one day very soon you will lift the veil from our hearts and our eyes and we will see Jesus. For he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He alone do we trust. So it is in that strong and matchless name of Christ that I pray today. Amen.